Bibles can, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Ruth, which is found after Joshua, Judges in the Old Testament, and then the book of Ruth. And it'd be good to keep your Bibles open uh, as we explore more about this story together. Uh, But before we dive into the story, can I say thank you for this privilege of coming to share God's Word with you in Airdrie, especially as you extend such favor to a former student of Coatbridge High School. I'm sure some of you have heard of Coatbridge and uh, know roughly where it is. But in my defense, I have to say that as a child, my father and I were regular on the terraces at Broomfield, and my late father was very proud to say that he had been at Hamden in 19... Sorry, it wasn't Hamden, I think it was Ibrooks in 1924 when Airdrie beat Hibs 2-0 and won the Scottish Cup. The last time, I think it's the only time Airdrie have actually won the, the Scottish Cup. So I have lots of connections with this particular part of Lanarkshire. Um, I grew up in Easter House before the infamous housing scheme was built. Then we moved to Muirhead and from there came up to Coatbridge to school, uh, secondary school. Now Rosemary and I live in Pitlochry. Rosemary's apologies, she had hoped to be here today, um, but she's actually got a hospital appointment today, so she can't be here with us this morning. Um, but she sends her, her greetings to you, and she's hoping to be here one of the other Sundays when I'm back. We have two daughters and six grandsons, all boys, and there's another grandchild on the way within the next two weeks. And our younger daughter, Heather, and husband um, are in the midst of a house move while they also wait for the latest addition to the family. So it's quite a hectic time for us as a family. So it's really nice to come and just relax and be with folks here in Airdrie on Sunday mornings. The book of Ruth is the book that immediately came to my mind when Jim first approached me and asked about coming to share uh, over a number of Sundays in Airdrie. It's a wonderful story. I remember uh, when I was a student at the Bible Training Institute in Glasgow many years ago, um, Donald McCallum, some of you would remember, who was the minister of Adelaide Place Baptist Church at the time, he came and delivered a lecture on the book of Ruth. And I don't remember everything Donald said, but one thing he said really stuck in my mind. He said, and this was from the context of living and working in the inner city of Glasgow, with all the need that was there literally on the doorstep of Adelaide Place. He said, we've met so many people in Glasgow, and he said the The truth is that many of these people, apart from the grace of God, do not have a chance in life, do not have a hope in life. And I've never forgotten what what he said. This was at the time when the Elpis Center for Homeless Girls was about to be started in Glasgow, when the needs of the city were pressing so much upon Donald himself and the folks in Adelaide Place, and it would lead to initiatives like the Elpis Center. But that comment, apart from the grace of God, there are some people who just don't have a chance in life. 
That was true of Ruth. As a foreigner coming to live in Israel, she didn't have a chance in life. But we'll come to that in a few moments. It, it led me to think that during these weeks, I would like to explore with you this theme of the grace of God, and in particular, pathways of grace. And we start at the beginning of the story in verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. We'll pause there, and we'll come back to verse 6 in a wee while. Here's the first part of the story. One of the reasons I chose the book of Ruth is it's set against a very dark background it says, in the days when the judges ruled. And so, if you read the book of Judges, you discover something of the background to the book of Ruth. There's a cycle of events in the book of Judges. Usually, it starts with the people of God sinning and rebelling against God's rule. That leads to coming under the yoke of oppression of some foreign power. It could be Moab, or it could be Ammon who invade the land and the people are subjugated during that period. That leads them to make supplication to God, to call out to God in desperation. And as a, a consequence, God sends saviors. If you're listening carefully, you know there's four S's there. The people sin, they come into servitude, they bring their supplication to God, and they experience the salvation that God brings through the judges. But the tragedy is, the pattern keeps repeating. It's a cycle of events. And it leads the author of Judges to say towards the end of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. In other words, there was a lack of moral and spiritual leadership. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So, you get this image of a society that's not learning from its past, and a society in which the people are going to sin again, and the same cycle will go round and round. And into that darkness, the book of Ruth shines like a ray of sunshine that comes bursting in, bursting through, and shows what can happen when the grace of God invades the darkness that envelops people. And this story begins in tragedy. There's famine. None of us have ever had to think about moving home because 
we don't have enough to eat, or I'm guessing that's the case, although you can never be sure, because in our very mixed, multicultural world, people from different lands find themselves in other places, and some of their stories are heart-rending stories. But I'm guessing none of us have had to move house because there's no food. But in another country, there is food. There's exile. When Elimelech and Naomi got their boys ready and made the journey to Moab, they knew they were going into foreign territory. The Moabites were distant, kind of second cousins of the Israelites. If you remember the story of Lot, how his daughters got him drunk one, one in successive nights and both slept with him and had sons to him. One was called Moab and one was called Ammon. That's where the Moabites came from. So they had a distant connection with the people of Israel, but they were poles apart in religion, in culture, and in language as well. So when Elimelech and Naomi made the decision, and it must have been a tough decision, to uproot, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. That means they were one of the longest established families in Bethlehem. Ephrath was the ancient name of Bethlehem, so they'd been there a long, long time. So to make that decision, we're going to up sticks, we're going to sell up, we're going to move lock, stock, and barrel to Moab. Must have been a huge decision for them to take. And the tragedy is compounded when Elimelech dies. And in those days, for women especially, the, the main hope of security and stability in life was through having a husband who would be there to support the family by bringing in money to feed the family and clothe the family and so on. And so for Naomi to lose Elimelech was tragic. And then it's compounded even more when both the boys die, Malon and Killian. And when you read this story, you begin to ask the question, how much can one person really take? Now Naomi is reduced to probably very close to poverty. She's been left without support from husband, from sons, and all she has are two daughters-in-law, three women united in this bond of widowhood, having lost their husbands. How much can one person actually take? Where does the grace of God come in stories like that? We live in a world where you're as likely to bump into refugees in Airdrie as you are in Pitlochry, and I've met a number there, or as you are in any major city in our world today. People movements are huge, and the issues that Naomi and Elimelech faced, and in particular Naomi, are issues that people are facing day in, day out. How contemporary is the Bible in the stories it tells? This is the mystery of suffering. At the beginning of this book, I said that Ruth was like a, a ray of sunlight, you know, the grace of God coming into the darkness, and there's considerable darkness in this story. So how does God's grace come and be manifest 
in this story. The late great German writer Helmut Thielicke once said this, the God we worship is the God who cares about our everyday lives. Tell me how lofty God is for you, and I'll tell you how little He means to you. If God has no significance for the tiny mosaic pieces of my life and for the things that concern me, then He doesn't concern me at all. Notice what Tilik is saying. The God we worship is the God who causes these stories to be written, stories of loss and tragedy, because He cares about the tiny mosaic pieces of the lives of these women, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, and He cares about the tiny mosaic pieces of our lives, the details that we think are insignificant, that don't matter. God knows and God cares. It's ironic that Elimelech's name means my God is King. Ironic given the circumstances that this family, what's left of the family now, finds themselves in. And yet it's still true. My God is still King. Even though all these things happen, and even though there's a mystery that we can never fathom or comprehend. So let's go back into the story in verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters in law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters in law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. 
when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And again, we'll pause there as we go into the next part of the story, choosing the way. There's a word that's used, I think it's eight times, one, two, three, four, five, six, eight times, I reckon, in this chapter. And it's the word return or go back. And it's used in different ways. And here's the the different options, if you like. Naomi was returning to Bethlehem. She was going back home. Orpah returned to Moab. She went in the opposite direction after coming so far with her mother-in-law. And Ruth went with Naomi. In a sense, you could say Ruth returned to a place she'd never been before. John Denver once wrote a song, Rocky Mountain High, and he talked in that song about a man going to a place, going back to a place he'd never been before. That was Ruth. But I think Ruth was saying, I've come home to the Lord. It's a very deeply emotional story. It's a very powerful story. I've sometimes conducted weddings where, you know, the couple have said, we would like to include Ruth's words in our wedding vows to one another. And it's very fitting to do that. And we've done it in some weddings, but I've always enjoyed pointing out that the words were addressed to the (laughs) mother-in-law, the words that were spoken by Ruth. So be gracious to your mothers-in-law when you're married. And if you're a mother-in-law, quote that to your son-in-law or daughter-in-law if you need to at some point. These are wonderful words that Ruth speaks. But you get this very different uh, event happening. The, The crunch comes on the journey when they've set off Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And Naomi lays down the difficulties that lie ahead. She says, if you come with me, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be hardship. We said earlier, In those days, security and stability for women came from marriage and hopefully from family. That was what most women lived for and looked for. And there was a practice in Israelite society, and more widespread than that, if a man got married and then, sadly, the man died, then one of the man's brothers would marry the widow. And the first child to that new marriage would inherit what the original husband would have inherited, any children to him. It was called the leverate marriage, and that's what's behind what Naomi says. Uh, Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have other children, other sons, would you wait for them to grow up before you could marry them? That was the, the practice of leverate marriage, which was there. It was designed to try and help protect the family inheritance and to ensure that there was some security passed on to the next generation. But Naomi says, if you're looking for a husband, remember, you're coming to Bethlehem from Moab, and I don't know how you'll be received there. And the chances of finding a husband and therefore finding security and stability there are pretty low. Go back to Moab. 
Go back to what you know there. There's much more likelihood that life will turn out well for you there than in Israel. And Orpah makes that decision. She goes back. And sometimes we're a bit hard on Orpah, but she was really looking at things as they were. And Naomi prays for her. May the Lord reward you for the kindness you've shown to me. Earlier on in the story, Naomi prays that blessing on Orpah. So let's not be too hard on Orpah. She's, she's counted the cost and she's realized she can't face going on. It's just too much. But Ruth is very different. And while Orpah uh, gives her mother-in-law a hug and a kiss, that's goodbye, and off she goes, Ruth won't let go. And it's Ruth who makes this wonderful statement. Can you remember what we said earlier? Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Something's happened in Ruth. Naomi says to, Or to, to Ruth that Orpah has gone back to her people and her gods. But Ruth says, my God now is your God. And in chapter 2, as we'll find out next week, Boaz speaks about Ruth as a woman who's come to find shelter under the wings of God. And so Ruth is really giving her testimony here, I think. Ruth is saying things are different for her. She now knows Naomi's God as her God, and she wants to be with her wherever she is and wherever she goes. There is a cost in going back. There is a cost in following Jesus Christ today. There is a cost in discipleship. There is a price that has to be paid. But when you've come to know the God of Naomi, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the God of the men and women of faith we've been singing about this morning, then you say, this is a price that I am willing to pay. And from Ruth's heart and life come this wonderful expression of love and loyalty. You notice she says, I'm, I'm not just coming with you, Naomi, until you've died, and then I can go back to Moab. Where you die, I will die, and I'm going to be buried there as well. What a woman is this woman, Ruth. Is it scarce wonder that her name appears in the genealogy in Matthew's gospel when the ancestors of Jesus are mentioned? And Ruth, the Moabite or the Moabitess, is one of the women who's mentioned there. So Orpah returned to Moab, Naomi returned to Bethlehem, but Ruth had come home to the Lord. And so they go back, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, 
but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Naomi's name means pleasant, but she says, I want to change it to Mara, which means bitter. Why call me pleasant when the Almighty has dealt so harshly with me? And you think, Naomi, can't you see how blessed you are to have Ruth there beside you? She's journeyed with you. She'll be there to support you and help you as best she can. Why are you pouring out this bitterness at this point? You know, there's something quite different uh, in the the Bible uh, compared to modern sensibilities amongst believers. In the Old Testament in particular, if people had problems with God, they went to God and they lamented or they argued with God and they they said to God, "This, this is not right. I don't like what's happening. But the thing is, they went to God with it. And that's the the thing you find consistently. How many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament or Psalms of people pouring out what's in their heart, but they're doing it to God, and that's what Naomi's doing. She's saying, I know what life has brought me. I know how this feels, and it just feels so bad. I was full and now I'm empty, but I'm bringing it to God. And there are two descriptions that are given of God as they go back to Bethlehem, and Naomi speaks about God. He's El Shaddai, the Almighty God. And there's this healthy approach in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that if God is sovereign over everything, then everything that happens is under His control. So if bad things happen, well, that's still under His control and I don't understand it, and I don't like it, but I'm still His child, and He's still God, and I still trust Him. He's El Shaddai. He's the Almighty One. But earlier on, when she prays for Orpah and Ruth, she uses the name Yahweh, which is a different name of God. And that name is the name that talks about God's covenant love and faithfulness his concern, his support for us, his presence with us in our lives, whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through. You know, I've sometimes thought it's much easier to be an atheist than to be a Christian. Because if you're an atheist and bad things happen, you can simply say, well, that's just tough luck. That's your lot in life. So sorry about it, but nothing we can do about it. It's Christians who have faith in this loving God who face the problems of what happens when people really go through the mill? What happens when disaster strikes? Where is God then? It's us that have to wrestle with these issues. But as we wrestle with them, as we struggle through them, we discover that El Shaddai is also Yahweh the God of tender, compassion, covenant love, who reaches out to us even through 
the tough, difficult, demanding disasters of life. He reaches out to us with His grace and His mercy, and He invites us, even when we don't understand, still to trust Him and to go with Him, as Ruth did and as Naomi did. And so they go back to Bethlehem, Bethlehem Ephrathah. They settle in the country, and Ruth is described as the Moabites who accompanies her mother-in-law. It's not going to be easy for her, but there's a real sense now in this story that God's grace is shining through the life of Ruth, and God's grace is shining into Ruth. And over the next few weeks, we're going to learn a bit more about how that grace was made manifest, was made real in the experience of this young woman. Ruth did not know what lay ahead of her. Sometimes sing that song, I do not know what lies ahead, the way I cannot see, but one stands near to be my guide. He'll show the way to me. I know who holds the future, and he holds me with his hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow with its problems, large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles. Give to him my all. That's what he asks of us. He is El Shaddai. He is the God who's in control of all things, but he's also Yahweh, the God whose covenant love is reaching out to us, whose grace he wants to pour upon us and to enfold us. And so in that grace, we pray together. Let's join our hearts.